Amen. Those of you that already know me fairly well already know this about me, but I like to analyze things. I like to look at things and assess them and to dissect them, to observe that, for better or worse, I'm cursed with that. I like to observe, including popular culture. I like to see and understand what's happening around me, what I'm being fed in, in movies and in music. And one thing that fascinates me about popular culture is, is this, to me, this weird thing called celebrities. It's just strange to me, but, but they become these icons where our, our popular culture as a whole and every culture is fixated on, on celebrity, on idolizing these people. And I, I don't really get it, like why we care about how many divorces they've had or how much money they waste or what they wear, but, but our world really idolizes them. And I think, well, why is that? Why is it that we as a people love this idolized celebrity reality that every culture has? I think it's because very deep inside, because God has wired us to worship. And so we are looking for idols. We call them American idols, but every country has one. Like every country has this program. And so we love it. We love taking idols for ourselves, and the reason is that as humans, God has created us to gaze upon something that's beyond ourselves, and as we gaze upon it, to really marvel at it, and to desire it, and then to love it with affection. God has created us to worship, but we can make an idol, quite honestly, out of anything. And so today, as we continue in the preaching series out of the book of Exodus, a series called Redemption, the Gospel in the book of Exodus, we are talking about idol worship. We're talking about our hearts that are, we just give ourselves to idolatry. Now, as brief review out of the book of Exodus that we began months ago, that we're continuing, we actually will be completing the series next week. We've been learning how God had a plan, and he had a plan to redeem his people. And saving the Israelites from slavery is not just a history lesson of what happened 3,500 or so years ago. It is God's story of redemption that points to the gospel of Jesus Christ, how God sent his son to come to live, to die and to be resurrected, and to do that in order to pay the price to liberate us from our slavery. And so the book of Exodus points to God's ultimate redemption that he is accomplishing through his Messiah, Jesus. And so the word redemption in the Bible, the word itself means to pay the price, to liberate something or someone from slavery. And so Jesus is the Redeemer who has redeemed us from our slavery to sin by paying the price on the cross, the ransom, the redemption price. And so last week as we've been learning and understanding this, we saw how the Israelites went to the foot of the mountain. And we saw how God spoke to them and gave them his word. He gave them his law, and then Moses at the end of chapter 31, so 31 verse 18, where we ended last week, Moses goes back up to Mount Sinai. Now, up to this point, 
Moses had not been gone for more than a day at a time. And so the Israelites were used to him going up to the mountain, being gone to the tent, but never gone for more than maybe a day. This time, he was gone for six weeks, for 40 days. So let's begin reading in Exodus 32, our text for this morning, this entire chapter. And let's see what God says, what revealed what happened to them while Moses was on the mountain. Exodus 32. It'll be on the screen. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down to your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and may consume them in order that I may make great nation of you. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with the mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. In all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that is spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned down and went down from the mountain with the two tablets the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf 
and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. They said to me, Make us gods who should go before us. And as for this Moses, man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what's become of him. So I said to them, Let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And Moses saw that the people had broke loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of the enemies. And then Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have Sinned a great sin. They had made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But go now, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron made. Remarkable part of the story of Exodus, chapter 32. This single chapter revealed our hearts. It reveals the heart of humanity. What we are like is clearly shown here. And yet, it also shows the heart of God. And so this one chapter encapsulates our hearts as well as God's. Let me give you the main idea for this text. Because as every week, the main idea of the text is the main idea of the sermon. So the main idea is that humans naturally volunteer to worship idols. We naturally, we give ourselves. So humans naturally volunteer to worship idols, but God's redemption frees us to enjoy Him. That is what this is about, is that humans naturally volunteer for for idol worship, and yet God's redemption frees us, liberates us, enables us through the power of His Spirit to enjoy Him, which is why today's title for sermon is Freedom 
from the idols that we worship. So redemption is freedom from the idols that we worship. So what is an idol? Let's define our terms. An idol, quite simply, is anything that is more important to you than God. What you value most, what you ascribe most worth to, is your idol. So if you think of it this way, what you turn to for significance, what you turn to for joy, what you turn to for comfort, for security, for fulfillment, whatever you turn to is your idol. I love the movies, Lord of the Rings. I mentioned it before. It's just powerful. J.R.L. Tolkien is just amazing in this work. In this incredible story, of course, you have the dark Lord Sauron that has the ring of power. And whoever wears this ring of power is corrupted. And they try to use it. And there are those in the story that would try to take the ring for good intentions to preserve the people's land or to defeat the enemy or, or for whatever reason. Sometimes they may have good intentions and they want to use this power for good. But the problem is that no one can wield it because the ring of power corrupts. And the more the person wears it, the more they get enslaved to it. No matter what the intentions originally were, they become enslaved to the power of this ring. And so they're consumed by it. And this is a picture of idolatry. Tolkien was giving us a picture. He was a believer. And what he was doing in this amazing story is showing the human heart that is sinful and corrupted. And we want idols and we become enslaved to it. And we have to have it. We just have to have the precious. Have to have it. We have to have that idol because it becomes our, our soul-consuming, driving reality in life. And so what an idol will do for us, an idol will drive us to do things that previously we would have never considered doing. There are things that you would say, I would never do that. But if you give yourself to an idol, you'll find yourself doing it. So idols are spiritual addictions that can lead to just great evil. So we all worship. Every one of us is constantly worshiping, whether we're worshiping God as we're supposed to, as we were designed to, to know him, to enjoy him, to be satisfied by him. Either we value God and we worship him, or we'll have an idol and worship something else. But let's not be deceived. We don't have a choice. We will worship because that's what we do. We're humans. We're created to. We're hardwired to. So our thoughts, our behaviors, everything about us is always going to be oriented around something, around something that we're going to ascribe worth to. So this is the heart of what it means to worship. So let's talk about better understanding idolatry, because when we understand it, then we're, we're going to have the ability to rely on God's Spirit to help us to overcome our propensity to have idols. We have to understand how it is that this works in our hearts and in our lives. And so, step one. So let's talk about understanding idolatry. First, the road to idolatry. So number one, let's talk about the road to idolatry. So what is a path 
that all of us can very easily take. And it's the same path. It's the path that we just read about in Exodus 32. What is the road to idolatry? Step one. So the first step that we take towards idolatry is our desires. Desires, that's where it starts. So desires that are in your soul is the first step towards idolatry. The Israelites did not like the wilderness. They weren't cool with it. They, they weren't feeling it. They didn't like being in the wilderness. They longed for the comforts of Egypt. They wanted to go home. And for them, home was Egypt. It's what they knew. It's what they were born into. And they longed for it. Well, how do I know they longed for it? Because Acts 7.39 tells us, Our fathers refused to obey him. Listen. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And so what is revealed in the New Testament is that the reason why they thrust God and Moses aside is because their hearts had turned to Egypt. The Israelites did not desire God. They desired Egypt. Now, it was one thing to take the Israelites out of Egypt, but it was quite another to take Egypt out of the Israelites. And so what do they respond? They said, make us gods. They go to the high priest. They go to Aaron. Make us gods. Not lead us to God. Not show us his glory. No, no, no. Make us gods. Create for us in our own image as we design a designer God. Make us gods. This is the essence of idolatry. What they told Aaron, make us gods in verse 1. And so the road to idolatry, step one, begins in our hearts. And we desire something more than we desire God himself. But see, here's where it gets really tricky. Here's where it gets kind of confusing for us. and why Here's where it gets hard for fallen humans like you and me. Is we make idols out of good things. Hear me. We make idols out of good things. When we take a good thing that is a gift from God to you, we take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing in our lives, we have just begun to worship the created instead of the creator. And so when we take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing, we've made it an idol. And here's where it gets even trickier. The greater the good, so that good gift that you love, the greater that good, the more likely we are to expect that good to satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. The greater the good, the greater the blessing, the greater it is, the more likely we are to turn to it and expect it or him or her to satisfy our deepest desires and needs. And so we make idols out of family and children, out of career, out of a relationship, out of peer approval, out of comfort, out of beauty or brains, out of morality or this great social cause or Christian ministry or making and saving money. We make it an idol. And by the way, if, if your main goal or significance in life is found in changing someone else, 
Now, a psychologist will say, oh, that's codependency. It's not. It's idolatry. That's what it is. And so psychologists make all kinds of new terms that are dysfunctions. No, they're not. It's idolatry. That's what the problem with the human heart is. It's not a dysfunction. It's sin. It's corruption. It's making a God out of things that are good gifts from God. And so the first step towards idolatry and this road to idolatry, the first step that we take is our own selfish desires. Step two, so the next step towards idolatry is doubt. So it begins with our heart, our desires. So we want something that's not God himself. And so then we begin to doubt God. That's what happened with the Israelites. They said, we don't know where God is. He's abandoned us. It's been six weeks. No more light show. No more opening, parting of the Red Sea. No more, no more Moses. We don't know where this Moses, I mean, you can hear the contempt towards Moses. This Moses, this guy, we don't know where he is. It's been 40 days now. And so they felt God abandoned them. They were doubting God's goodness. They were doubting God's faithfulness. They were doubting God's word. Doubting that he was real. Doubting him. They weren't trusting his character. And so they began to doubt God. And can't we do that? We have our desires. We want to do something. And then we say, well, God doesn't really care if I do this. God's okay with this. And we doubt that he really is holy. We doubt that he really cares for us. He wants us to be holy. We, we, or we doubt that he's even there at all. And so this doubting takes us further down the road towards having an idol. But the third step, and so it begins with our desires, first step. The second step is begin to doubt God. And then the third step is just flat out disobedience. We, we disobey God. We disobey what he's clearly revealed. And the Israelites did this. Their desires were shown. They doubted God. And so then they gave in to their temptation, and they went into full-fledged idolatry when they disobeyed God. They didn't care. God had given them clear instructions. Don't make any idols. They did. Have no other gods before me. They did. So what they were doing with this calf is they were rejecting the God who revealed the instructions, rejecting God, and they were redefining who God was by redefining his word. And so they were trying to have a new standard. So there's designer God that they made Now, with their designer standards, that, by the way, they lowered the standards that God had called them to purity. They wanted to set the agenda for themselves, and we can all do this, all of us. Now, when you are tempted to sin, whether it's to get angry at your husband, or whether it's to yell at your kids, or whether it's to call in sick when you're not sick, you're sick of your boss, but you're not actually sick, but you call in sick when you're tempted to click on that site, when you're tempted to lash out in anger at your mother-in-law. I've never done that. Y'all have. Well, maybe not mother-in-law, but lash out in anger in some capacity. When we're tempted to do something, and, and then we do it, and we wonder why. Why do we sin? Why do we succumb to temptation? You know why? You know why we do it? 
The reason why we knowingly choose to sin, knowing that it's not good for us, it's not going to end well, we know that, and yet we do it, because deep down inside, we believe it's going to make us happy. Deep down inside, we actually, we truly believe this, that indulging in that sin is going to bring a measure of joy, of fulfillment, of comfort, of happiness. And so we believe the lie. We choose to believe the lie, and we willingly give in to it. Much like that little boy who wanted to go swim in a canal, and his father told the little boy, no, you can't go in that canal alone. Well, later that afternoon, the father sees a little boy, and he has wet swim trunks. And he's like, why, why are your trunks wet? He's like, I was in the canal. He's like, didn't I tell you don't swim in the canal? He's like, Yes, you did. Well, why did you go in the canal? Why did you go swim there alone? I told you not to. Well, I had my bathing suit with me, and I was tempted. And so I, I, I swam. I couldn't resist temptation. And the father says, why did you take your bathing suit? Just leave it at home. And the boy says, I wanted to be ready in case I was tempted so that I can go swim. Too often we expect to sin. And we're lying to ourselves. Oh no, I'm going to maintain purity. While the other half of our brain, we're planning to do it. We're we're planning in the back of our heads. We know full well we're going to give in. And yet we say, oh no, I'm struggling with this sin. When we talked about this last week. No, you're not even struggling at all. You're giving in to it. You're enjoying it a little bit too much. We believe that it's going to bring us happiness. We believe it. We do. If we didn't, if we believed that walking with Jesus would bring more joy, then we would say no to the temptations more often. And so talking about this road, step one, so the first point, the road to idolatry, the steps towards it is your desires. Number one, you doubt God. Number two, and you disobey him. Number three. So that is the road, that is the path that all of us take towards idolatry. Now, once we succumb and we give in, what are the results? So that's the road to idolatry. What are the results of idolatry? The second point, what are the results of idolatry? We see it in verses 3 and 4. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made a golden calf. And this is what he said, the high priest. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. A cow? Really? That cow brought them out of slavery. They were saying that this cow, this calf, represented the one true God who had liberated them from slavery. And so they were taking a pagan notion because who worshipped bulls? The Egyptians did. And so they took what was common, familiar, comfortable, which was worshipping bulls, and they said, oh, God is like this. It was syncretism. They They were taking their pagan notions and saying, this is what God is like. They were creating God in their own image. But they were saying the right things. This is why worship is not just the words that we use. 
Worship is not just singing. It's not the words. It's your heart. This word, that's not worship. It's heart before God. And your words are a reflection of what's in your heart. You see, they're saying the right things. They're calling him the Lord. They offer sacrifices. By the way, the ones God revealed, burnt and peace offerings, these are God's sacrifices. And so they're doing the God thing, the religious thing, calling this calf the Lord. He's the one that has saved us. They're saying the right things. They're going to church, so to speak. But their hearts were corrupted because they were doing that, the right words, maintaining the appearances, while worshiping God with their own agenda, based upon their own thoughts, with their own selfish desires. And so they wanted God's power. He saved them. They acknowledged that. They want God's power. They want to pray and have their answers prayer. I mean, their, their, their prayers answered, rather. They want that. But they don't want God. Not on his terms. Not enjoying God. They, they want to maintain the appearances and worship him, but on their own terms. And how do we know that? It says, because when they offer the sacrifices, call this cow the Lord. He saved us from, from Egypt. It says that the next morning, they got up to eat and drink and play. Now, they weren't playing board games. All right? They weren't playing rugby or cricket. This was Egyptian-style, highly sexual, pagan play. They were partying. They were dancing. They were really enjoying themselves. Some translations say pagan revelry, which is a good translation of what was going on here. And so they wanted to delight in what the world had to offer them and yet maintain, oh, this is, this, is, this is about God. No, it was nothing about God. It was about them wanting to enjoy what this world had to offer. It was idolatry. So what happens? What is the result of this? What is the result of idolatry? Listen to the language that the Bible uses for them. This is, it's really kind of humorous. So God calls them stiff-necked, which is talking about being obstinate or stubborn. Okay? And then he says, the people have broken loose. And Moses is at the gate. This imagery is that the Israelites are animals. Stubborn animals that got out, they broke loose. And there's Moses trying to get the animals back in the gate. They went to worship a cow and other cows. He's like, man, they're animals. That is what they've become. So this is saying that we resemble what we worship. We resemble what we worship. They wanted to worship a cow. They got animalistic. You worship sex going to be on your mind all the time, in your words, it's going to be on, if it's money, it's all you're going to be about. You resembled what you worship. This is critical to understand because the result of idolatry is slavery. 
So what is the result of idolatry? Slavery. That's what it is. And what's so sad is the Israelites, and this is a picture of us, volunteered for it. We literally say, okay, sign me up. Um, be far from Jesus. Um, destroy my life. Um, this is going to be terrible in the end. Sign me up. I volunteer. I want it. I'll take it. I'll take the slavery. But see, the thing is, we don't think that way. We think, oh, it's just one sin, and we're just going to choose this one sin. But what happens is we quickly become enslaved to the power of that sin. And it's amazing how quickly, within just a few weeks of of this mountain experience where they receive the law and they have a relationship with the merciful, loving God, a few weeks later, now they're, they're enslaving themselves to this idol, to sin, quickly. I mean, this would be like a man who, a groom in particular, just got married, and he's in his wedding reception, and the groom sneaks out of his wedding reception to commit adultery on his new bride with the bridesmaid. I mean, in the reception, pretty quick. He didn't waste time cheating on his wife. And the Israelites here committed spiritual adultery. And they did it very quickly. They didn't waste any time because their hearts were wired that way. And Moses comes down, and he's holding the stone tablets that represent the covenant, the relationship. And what does he do with them? He smashes them. He breaks them. Why? Why is that so important? What do you think smashed stone tablets represent? The fact that the Israelites had just done that. That had just smashed, fractured, destroyed, broke the relationship with God. They broke the covenant. They violated God. They committed adultery. They ripped apart the relationship. And in so doing, Moses destroying these tablets is a powerful picture of what they had just done spiritually. And so what is idolatry? Valuing something more than Jesus, loving something else more than God. And so what, what is the road to idolatry? It begins with the desires. You doubt God. You disobey. And what is the result? We become enslaved to our sins. What is our response? What is the response? Number three. Talk about the road, the results, now the response to idolatry. Well, God was angry. Verse 25 says that they became a laughing stock to the enemies. And so God's glory was supposed to be displayed through his people. God has saved us, redeemed, so that we can display his beauty and wisdom and glory to Abu Dhabi and to the world. And it began there to display to the nations how amazing that God is. But they weren't displaying God's glory. They were distorting God's glory. God was not pleased with that. And so what was God's response? First, it was correction. So what is God's response to our idolatry? The first response towards our idol worship is God corrects us. God used the Levites to execute 3,000 people. Now, that sounds really harsh. Like, man, what's up with that? Well, first understand this. The entire nation deserved execution, and yet God was correcting them by identifying the ringleaders. He was identifying the primary instigators and had them executed. Well, why? 
Well, why just them, and how do you know? Well, verse 33 says that only those who have sinned against God will be judged. And so if you piece this together, the context is revealing to us that these 3,000 were the primary ones that sinned against God and led the others to worship the calf as well. And so God removed them, those ringleaders, and yet he was correcting the nation by showing them, I care about our relationship. Adultery is bad. It destroys our relationship. And I want you. I am jealous for you. I want your heart. I don't want to share it. And so I'm going to oppose your idols. I'm going to smash them, burn them, and make you drink it. God was saying something very powerful here. He was trying to correct them and show them, I'm giving you the best. I'm giving you myself. What could God give you that's better than himself? And him, the relationship, for you to know and to enjoy him forever. And so when we turn to other things, he corrects us. Through his word, spirit's conviction, or through others who lovingly correct us. The question is, how do we respond when we get correction we ought to respond well to restore the relationship with God and with others. And so how does God respond to our idolatry? First, he corrects us. But second, his response is compassion. He's compassionate towards us. You see, God wanted to destroy all of them and begin all over again with Moses. And in verses 9 through 14, describes this conversation And it would appear as though Moses has convinced God otherwise, as though God was going to do something, destroy them all, and begin again with Moses to accomplish redemption and bring us Jesus. But Moses says, no, don't do that. And God says, okay, you've convinced me. You got me, Moses. Good argument. You're a good lawyer, so your argument is better than my argument. And so I'm going to go ahead and, and relent because, Moses, you're so articulate and because you've convinced me, so I changed my mind. Now, there are atheists or others that will point and say, look, how could you be a believer? How do you trust this archaic book? God isn't trustworthy. He changes his mind. He's shifting. How could you cast your eternity, your soul, on a God that's not reliable? Who can change his mind? He changed his mind with Moses. He might change his mind about you. How could you possibly trust God? There are those that would approach this text and would have that kind of argument. That's that's, honestly, it's ridiculous. Because if you look at this in its context, God did not change his mind. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unshifting, unmoving, immutable, which means unchanging. And so we absolutely can trust God and we can cast ourselves on his mercy because we know that he is trustworthy and he will not change his mind. He makes a promise and he will keep it absolutely trustworthy. And so how do you understand this conversation where it says God then relented after Moses intercedes for him? First thought is this. Everything that Moses said is what God had already said earlier. And so God clearly had every intention from the beginning to show compassion to his people, to not destroy them all. 
because God made a promise to Abraham four centuries earlier that through one of Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. All the peoples would be blessed. We know that's Jesus. That's a fulfillment, the promise to Abraham. God had every intention of keeping his promise. And so it's not like he changed his mind, but there's something deeper and really important that we have to understand here, which is what this whole story here is of the conversation. So what you see here is this. The people have sinned. They're worshiping idols. They're guilty. They deserve condemnation. Moses goes and he intercedes. And he says, God, please don't destroy them. He climbs the mountain at the end of the chapter. He goes back up, climbs the mountain. And he says, God, if you'll take the atonement, can I die in the place? Blot me out of eternal, of your book. Blot me out. May I be condemned so the people can be saved. Can I be their redeemer? Moses climbs a mountain and is willing to die in the place of the Israelites. He's interceding for them. And God says, no. No, Moses. You can't die for them. You can't be the atoner. You can't be the redeemer. Sorry, Moses. No. Those that are guilty, those 3,000 primary ones, they're going to pay for it themselves. But the reason why this is so significant, how it points to the gospel, is that 1,400 years later after this event, this shadow that was pointing to the ultimate reality is you had another man, descendants of Abraham, who climbed Mount Calvary. And he hung on a cross. And this time, the father looked to Jesus and said, Yes, yes, Jesus, you can die for my people. You can be their redeemer and you can atone for their sins. And Jesus interceded. He prayed while hanging on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Moses interceding and God relenting was a picture pointing to, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, interceding, and God relenting because his wrath was poured upon Jesus. And so this story, when you read it in the biblical context, the reason why it happened that way, where God relented by the intercessor, is because it points to Jesus. He is the intercessor who paid the price for you and me. And what must we do? So what is God's response to our idolatry? Well, he corrects us and he has compassion. Why? Because Jesus paid the price. So what should your response be for your idolatry? Faith and repentance. Turn away. Run from the idol and run to Jesus who loves you who's had compassion over you, who wants what's best for you, wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to have freedom from the idols that you worship. But you must respond to him with trust. The key is being captivated by the beauty and glory of Jesus and seeing more value in him than in the idols. This is only possible by the Holy Spirit's 
working in us as we abide, as we spend time and we enjoy Jesus. And we replace desires for evil with desires for God. It's all about Jesus. Everything in Exodus, everything in this amazing, thrilling book is about Jesus redeeming us for his glory to be displayed. And if you're here this morning and you have never understood that and never given your life to Christ where you've said, I have my idols and they are not satisfying me and I repent today and I turn to Jesus and make him my God, then you will be forgiven today if with all of your heart you'll repent and believe in Jesus and trust him alone for your salvation because he paid the price, did what you could not do. You can have that joy today. And if you are a believer and you have a struggle with an idol, run from it and run to Jesus. He loves you. He'll take you back. He loves you. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we are thankful. Our hearts are full of joy for you have revealed yourself to us, revealed your redemption. We don't deserve your forgiveness. We can never earn your favor or your salvation. But you freely give it to us because your son paid the ultimate price. We thank you that you don't change your mind. We thank you that you keep your promises and we can trust you. We thank you, Father, for the joy even now. As a faith family, as we will now observe your table, communion, we thank you for the picture that it is. We thank you, Father, for the gospel, this good news of your salvation for us, that we can have joy and have it for eternity. We praise you for your son, and we pray in his name, for his kingdom's sake, Father, and for his glory and his renown. In the name of Jesus, amen.